0: Happy New Year my community. It's January 11th, 2024, and this is the first episode of the new calendar year. Today, the sun will rise at 7:29 a.m. and set at 5:33 p.m. That's 10 hours and 4 minutes of daylight. We've gained a few minutes of light since our last episode on the winter solstice. Slowly but surely, the earth is turning and tilting, bringing change, even if we barely notice as it happens. The slow trickle of returning light has begun. The season of darkness is in slow retreat. To those of you waiting for the long days to return, hold on. Joy is coming. I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. Join me as we once again branch out, following the roots and filaments of teaching and connection here at the college. What is the place we allow for failure in higher education? How could we better understand and engage with failure in our work with students and in our professional lives? This is Instructional Ecology. Welcome back to the podcast, a new calendar year, and to a new semester, which began at the college last week. And we welcome back the slow return of daylight. Focusing on the seasons of light and darkness in our natural world offers us the chance to appreciate incremental change in many ways. After the pain or shock of failure, it can be easy to overlook early signs of regeneration. We often don't notice the extra minute or two of light as we lose and gain it as the season's turn. But then one day, we see the change has been happening and we are in a new place. So it can be with recovery after failure. We can't force a change in feeling or healing, but we can appreciate small signs of movement. We can accept that time brings change, and we can choose how we respond, how we ask for support, and what we choose to do next. Thinking seasonally can offer us insight into how we survive changes and rebuild. Today's episode is the first of a pair that brings our questions of this podcast season to administrative leadership. I wondered, what does failure look like from that vantage point? Instead of looking at student success on an individual level, on a class level, or even a program level, what if we looked at it from a holistic, institution-wide context from the administrative purview? Our guest today is Diane Carr, former Vice Provost and Chief Academic Officer, who retired in 2023. We spoke just as she was about to leave her position for retirement, so we're getting a very deep perspective from a lifetime of work in higher education and years in administration here at the college. I think an important strength of the podcast is that we speak to people at all points in their careers in higher education and in their time at MTC. Today, we talk to someone at the end of their career, high up in leadership. By understanding the kind of perspective one gains when one moves up in a hierarchy and by asking questions of someone with that bird's eye view, we gain new vistas into how failure is accounted for in the overall work of our mission as a college. Diane was also the outgoing chair of the Strategic Planning Committee for Students' Basic Needs, the same committee that Muffy Allison spoke to us in detail about in Episode 4 of this season. Diane will give us some of her perspective from the top about those basic needs, as well as her ambivalence about the metrics two-year colleges use to measure student success. She also talks about how failure is encompassed by guided pathways and observes that the pathways model doesn't always allow for the feeling we began the podcast with, being in a dark wood, lost and uncertain and unable to find the path through confusion and loss. Once again, we ask our questions about a place for failure in higher education, and we'll refine it to a place for failure in Guided Pathways. Join us as Diane Carr, former Vice Provost and Chief Academic Officer, talks about failure from an institutional
1: vantage point.
0: Diane, I'm so pleased that you are with us today.
1: Um, Thank you for having
0: me. I would love for you to begin with
1: what a chief academic officer is. (laughs) The chief academic officer of a college is responsible for all the academic schools and programs, departments, faculty, um, the curriculum. And so basically that means things like policies that support faculty success and student success, um, accreditation, both college accreditation and program accreditation, strategic planning, trying to be sure that there's an adequate budget we're spending money on the right things. We're allocating resources to the right people to do the right things. Um, It also includes the library and tutorial services at some colleges it might include other things as well but that's what it that's what it means here that is such a, a
0: broad and deep job description so what kind of perspective
1: does this give you uh, of the college it really gives a tremendous perspective. I came, I started as a faculty member and I thought I knew the college as a faculty member and then became a department chair and said, oh, so there, there's more people than me. And then I became a um a associate vice provost. So I was over six departments and thought, wow, there's a lot going on here I didn't know about. And every time I've moved up a level, I've discovered that There are more needs and more resources and more things to consider when making decisions and more ways to make other people's lives better and also more ways to make them worse. Just unintended consequences from not understanding how what I decide to do is going to impact somebody else. I don't know that there's a better
0: description of that interconnection Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: we don't always see depending on our location, right? Sometimes it's not visible because we only see a small part. Sometimes it is incredibly visible, but we don't have a good understanding of how we actually have that power to change other lives. Right. Uh, So that's, wow. that's, you know, to, to use the, um, the incredibly common edge these days with great power kind of
1: comes great responsibility,
0: <laughs> right? It sounds like you feel that responsibility rather keenly.
1: Yes. Yes. I, um, I'm not a doctor, but do no harm is a really good mantra to go by that, you know, you lead, you follow, or you get out of the way. You, you, you don't make things worse.
0: We're talking about something that is quite powerful and painful, which is student failure. Mm. And that's something, of course, that is intensely, as you said, you know, you may have power to improve things, but also decisions could could go the other way. Right. I imagine that would um, really raise the stakes for you as you consider paths of opportunity. Yes. So what from your perspective, how do you see, so like, you know, if I talk to faculty members about student failure, they are in the classroom working direct service, uh, a chair might look at it differently, a dean, but for you as chief academic officer, how does student failure factor into your perspective at the
1: college? When I see student failure, I normally see it at a program level or at a retention level? Not so much did they, were they successful on this paper or this assignment? Not even were they successful in this course, but how did they do this semester? And were they successful enough that they're gonna come back and try it next semester? Um, And are they progressing? Um, So it, Looking at some of the same markers, but over a longer term, I think. Right. Well, when we talk about student success,
0: are we even talking about failure? Or if we are talking about failure, how how do
1: we do that? We don't talk about failure very much, even with guided pathways, which is our... um, our new way of doing things. It's all about student success, making sure students are learning and keeping them on the path. We don't talk much about what happens if they're not learning, what happens if they don't stay on the path. Um, we, We treat that as such an anomaly and everyone gets off the path. At some point, very few people go go straight through with no hitches um, and we don't really do much I mean even with probation and suspension students that we know are are trying to come back a, and come back from a failure right now we aren't doing much with them that's that's on our list that how can we support students how can we help them address what kept them from being successful before and make a plan to do things different? And what can we provide for them that help them do things differently?
0: I feel like that we're in the era of that question. If there were answers, we would know them and be doing things. I feel like this, like, this is I feel like as we stumble on this conversation, it's not that the college doesn't know what to do about student failure. It's the profession. Higher education doesn't seem to talk very well about it.
1: And we've, I think we've entered a new phase. I, I think the pandemic, um, I think it did a couple of things. I think it has caused people to question um, a, a lot of of um, the value of higher ed and um, anytime. time um, Employment, um, unemployment goes down and wages go up. People see a, a a path to taking care of themselves without education. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece is that students have had a very different educational experience, and it hasn't always been a good one, and it hasn't always been one that's conducive to developing habits that lead to success in a traditional college sense. Um, We talk about um, that we need to be a student ready college. We can't rely on getting college ready students as an open enrollment college. We need to be a student ready college. But what that means has changed since 2020. Um, our students have a different set of needs um, than than we we thought we were getting a good handle on. Surprise! <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, well, I, and I think you're right. I think that everyone is trying to catch up and to figure things out. And I know that. I mean, it's not like we're no we don't talk about failure because people do. Uh, and I know that you know there are a couple of things that sort of college wide. You've said, you know, some things that we do try to do to help students, since we know, as you said, all of us have setbacks and failures and things mm-hmm. like that. What are a couple of things that, you know, the college does to help?
1: One of the things we did as a part of Guided Pathways was to try to get students in curriculum level math and English courses as, as quickly as possible, um, we know that not everyone has all the skills that they need to be successful in those courses. And maybe they've been out of school a while and those skills are rusty and they they need some time to, to catch up to that. But what national statistics show us is that students who have to spend a lot of time in those developmental courses before they get to their curriculum, they hardly ever make it to the curriculum. The ones that do are great success stories, but very few of them do. So we have have gone the Guided Pathways method of trying to put students in curriculum level courses with support, so support on the side. As they're in the course, they take another course along with it that provides them with a skills review, or some help with their studenting skills and understanding what the instructor's asking them for and helping them with time management, just support along the side that can help them be successful and be successful in one semester instead of two or three. You've also mentioned um, early success. That's a,
0: Tell me a little bit about that initiative.
1: Well, success breeds success. Um, People get to like the feeling of success once they've experienced it and they're willing to work harder and they're less likely to stop when they run into an obstacle if they've had success before. So we really encourage instructors to try to give an assignment at the beginning of the semester where students can... Have an early success. Have a good grade early. One of the things I used to do in um, in my English classes when I, I didn't test a lot in English, but when I did in literature courses, is I tried to make the first question an easy question that I thought everyone would get right, because I thought... They'll. It'll help them get over the panic and the anxiety of taking the test if they can get the first question right. I never told them that's what I was doing because I was afraid if they they if they didn't know it, it would freak them out. Um, even if they knew the rest of them, that oh no, I, I missed the easy one. Um, but just things like that, the instructors can do just to to help students kind of get in the rhythm of of being successful. Well, as you said,
0: I mean, even by saying rhythm, that means that the stress falls in different places, that it's not right. even, there's there's a cadence, you know, things go well and then they don't go well. What do you find um, we do do with students that fail or uh, gaps that you find are really hard for us when when students encounter failure?
1: We all want students to learn from failure, just like we all wanna learn ourselves from from failure. I think students aren't used to thinking about failure in that way and they really need someone to sit down with them and ask them some good questions. What did you do that helped you? What did you do that held you back? What can you do differently next time? to make sure that things went better. You know, what are three things you can do? Um, and, and really get specific about some strategies that that students can employ and, and some steps they can take that will help them be successful. And that's hard to do in terms of having enough time to spend with each student and have that conversation. It's not a conversation that can be had in 10 minutes between between class meetings. It may not even be one that can be had during one single office hour. Um, It may be something where the student needs to check in periodically um, and have an ongoing conversation. Well, I tried this and I thought it was gonna work, but it doesn't seem to, what else can I do? to, to try to make things better. Right. This so is the, the time intensive
0: nature mm-hmm. um, and, and the amount of focused cognition that's going to go into that, right? Like two people thinking together and to add on top of that emotion, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's one thing to talk about the abstract nature of success in college. It's another thing when you're doing badly and you have all the emotion of I'm blowing it. Um, right. You know, students have layers of expectation.
1: Um, well, and some of them have not had success in academics before and are pretty convinced they can't do it. And perhaps they may have family members who are pretty convinced they can't do it. Um, and the, they need an external voice that, that's going to counter that. I know you can do it. Um I, I've had ha, had students who were in special ed in K through twelve. And one young lady in particular, she was very bright. I don't know what how she ended up in special ed, but she was convinced that she was stupid. And she wasn't. And it was such a revelation to her that she could do the college work. Um, So, but that's not something she could have gotten from inside when all she had experienced before were messages that she couldn't do it.
0: So as an open enrollment community college, our many of us, some of our students are traditional college-age students who are spending the majority of their time on studies, but that's only a portion. Mm -hmm. many more of our students are in the full flower of their lives they have parents they may have children they they're working at least one job maybe more Uh, that's that's an incredibly complex sort of thing and i know that uh we hot off the presses right now we have the results of the hope survey yes we do could you tell me a little bit about why you think that's important What, what is it going to tell us
1: It tells us that 58% of our students have an insecurity with a basic need, either food, housing, or homelessness. It's hard to pay attention to your studies if you're hungry or your children are hungry. It's hard to pay attention to your studies if you don't live in a safe place or if you're worried that you'll lose the place that you live, or you're couch surfing with with another family and you have no privacy. Um, Those are just basic needs um, that people have. 31% of our students are parents. Um, And I think it was 80% of them say child care is really a struggle that having someone take care of their children um, in order for them to go to work and go to school, Lord forbid, studying, um, is terribly expensive and, and, and very hard um, to manage. When we did the Ruffalo-Noel-Levitt survey several years ago to find out what were the factors that made our students likely not to be successful? They were all economic. There was not a single academic factor that contributed greatly to them not being successful. It was all about having to work too many hours, not being able to pay the bills, You know, working two jobs, having a job switch on them where they were working days and now they're working nights or they were working first shift and now they're working second shift and 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 having to adjust their classes um, to that. So. We've known anecdotally that students have these struggles, but this is the first time we've had the data to see how many of them have these struggles and this is not unique to Midlands Tech this is we're pretty consistent across the state of South Carolina we're pretty consistent across the country with other two-year colleges um, those, and we haven't even talked about mental health <sighs> the um we know after the pandemic that stress and depression and anxiety have grown well. Can you imagine having the food insecurity and the housing insecurity, and not being sure you're going to be able to to take care of your children? How could you not be stressed out and depressed um, when when you're facing those things? So, I think we're having a very good conversation at the college level about okay we want students to be successful and we 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 know what's keeping them from being successful what can we do about it how can we help them find the resources that they need we know we can't give them the resources we don't have housing we we um we don't have a food plan that we can just give them a card to um, we we don't have the amount of resources that would would be needed, but our community has lots of resources if we can make some pathways to help our students access those resources. And that's what we're hoping is going to come out of the the Hope Center survey that we have a better sense of what it is that students need and, We can um, put some resources of ours into forging the links to the community that we need to get our students to those resources.
0: You know, when I am listening to you talk about that model, it reminds me, I'm sure you've heard the cliche of town and gown right mm-hmm. that when there's a higher ed institution or university perhaps in a town that somehow it's different it's separate from the community but what i hear you suggesting is that conversations are to make the community college more community
1: oh absolutely we we are very much a part of the community um almost everybody has a middle and central college connection um in, in some way or another and our students work in the community they will go back to working in the community this isn't a four-year college where they're from out of town and they're going to go back to another town or to another city for graduate school or they're they're probably not what is it 98 percent of our students stay in this community so yeah we are the community right sometimes we
0: and yet you said that we these are different pathways for us we have many community connections but not these right right? we're not connected to community resources that would be a new dimension Mm -hmm. and quite different for us so and i hear also that we're sort of at the beginning of those kinds of conversations right Um, so uh, another thing another question that's in does not yet have an answer but is being answered well when we talk about student failure and success and metrics and numbers i know that uh one thing because we we do measure success but it's with graduation rates and you feel that this is a tricky number talk, tell me a little bit about that kind of measurement and your thoughts on it yes
1: the the graduation rate is based on a student graduating within 150% of the time that that it takes to take, so if it's a four-year degree, do they graduate within six years? If it's a two-year degree, do they graduate within three years? That's a metric really meant for a four-year college with students who are living on campus and their job is to be a college student. It is not a metric that's meant for students at community college, the majority of our students are part time. You know um, that they, they drop in and out, um, or they swirl. They they come to us and they go someplace else, and they come back to us um, just as as their needs change, as their goals change, and we also because we do we are open enrollment, um, and we do try to meet students where they are. They aren't necessarily coming in in their first curriculum course. They might have some work to do ahead of time to do that. We have some limited, um, limited enrollment programs where students have to take a great many courses before they get into the program. Uh, particularly in health sciences, where they might, or the nursing program, where they have to take their sciences before they get into their program. Um, in order to be prepared for it. So that's just not a metric that works for us. I wish we could measure success by what does the student want to achieve? And at the end of their time with us, have they achieved it? Because some students come just to get a few courses to transfer. And if they, if they, take 30 semester hours and they qualify to be a transfer student at a four-year college isn't that success but we don't get credit for that as a success if they want a few courses in management so they'll they'll know they're they're up for a promotion and they want a little bit of, of more um information and training so they can do that job well. Well, isn't that a success? If it allows them to go on to another position and gain some responsibility um, and a new position at work, that's a success, whether they've actually finished um, a program or not. So I, if, if we're here to serve the students in, making their lives better, then shouldn't we take their definition of what that means and measure ourselves against our ability to help them get there?
0: I think that's so wonderfully said. And I feel like you're defining a community college the way that I would, which is what does the community want? Mm -hmm. You know, we're not here to impose... Uh, some sort of standard for them if they do want things that require a standard then we offer that in other words if you want to go to a four-year you know and and take these courses then this is what you must do but if you don't there are other things that we can offer you and i wonder when we think about that straight, that imaginary straight line, right? <laughs> that we have this specific thing that's gonna happen, and you know, we're just going to follow the stepping stones, all in order. As you said earlier, that doesn't happen a lot of the time in any right. life. What is opened up if we begin to talk about success as not a straight
1: line? Mm-hmm.
0: What do you feel is is possible if we begin? to talk about success as something other than a straight shot. Is there another way we could talk about it that would be more evocative and true?
1: This might be very anti-Guided Pathways because Guided Pathways is based on um, you're aiming for a career and we try to get you there as quickly as possible. But there are a, a lot of our current students are going to have careers we don't even know about. So what would be wrong with allowing them to change what they're what they're doing? And we 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 do. I mean they can they can change majors and things. One of the things I, I find real exciting is our interdisciplinary studies um that Donna Zeke um, helps us with she is very good at looking at where students want to do something where we don't have a program that really gets them where they want to be, but maybe they want to um, do something in industrial and something in art. Um, the, the art student who wants to do welding as part of their art. Well, you know, we, we don't really have a, a, a degree for that, but what a great idea. Or um, a medical illustrator, someone who wants to do medical illustration. So they they need the anatomies and physiologies, but they need the art at the same time. I'm I'm on an art roll, sorry (laughs) about that. But um, she has some really good examples of where students are combining very disparate fields In order to get them to an opportunity um, that they want to pursue. And I think it takes a very creative person as a student to see this is where I want to go. And I want to create a path to get there. But even that doesn't allow for a lot of, of weaving in and out. Um, the other thing interdisciplinary studies does is Donna works with students who have taken a lot of transfer credit and need to finish a degree, but they don't have what they need to fit any any programs. So she is able to design a degree that that pulls in what they've done in a coherent way and packages it in a way that that shows and sometimes have to supplement with with some additional courses but allows them to take what they already have and put it together in a way that allows them then to complete the degree.
0: I hear Donna and interdisciplinary studies as the place where many paths could intersect. many different ideas and combinations of things Mm -hmm. that's that's the place that the college you know has at this point but I'm wondering what do you feel opens up when we take that time to figure out student goals as opposed to saying oh we're going to match you with that tell me about the importance of student goals in your perspective
1: if if the student doesn't have a goal themselves or bought into the goal they've chosen, they're not likely to stick to it when the going gets tough. The real success stories I've seen are the students who have a personal commitment to what they're trying to achieve. And sometimes that is a recognizable path that that we've laid out for them and they're able to follow it. But sometimes it's not a recognizable path that they've sort of had to forge on their own. But either way, it's that personal commitment to it that's going to allow students to keep going when it gets hard. We say many traditional college students come to college because they were told that's what's next. Um, They don't necessarily value it, They don't necessarily know why they're here um, with us. I don't have a lot of faith in those students' ability to finish because there's nothing that they really have a stake in. It's when it's something they really want and they are committed to that, that, that I think they're successful. When I, uh, the
0: last place I taught before I came here was a research one. And so many of the students knew why they were there, but there was always a percentage of students who had been told, none of us have ever gone to college. You're the one. And they didn't, so they didn't have that intrinsic motivation. But when I came here and I taught at night, Mm, the night students knew why they were here. Mm -hmm. There were many different goals, but the night students, were so focused because most of them were returning. Some of them were adults and it was the first shot they had to go to college. Mm-hmm. And um that was that was when I really loved teaching in a new way because I mm-hmm. felt that I was so clearly of use to them. Right. I had something that they really needed and really wanted and and they were mm-hmm. going to get into it. But my concerns as a faculty member then were very specific, right? I had X number of students and X number of classes and I was working with them individually. And I always had the students that I would worry about and think, okay, what does so-and-so need? So-and-so, you know, oh, this is a hard time for them. What can we do to that would, that would support them? But I'm wondering about you at an institutional level. You're not worrying about individual students. You're worrying about institution. So as we think about failure and we bring it up to an institutional level, Mm -hmm. what does that open up for you to, to talk about? Like, what do you worry about at your level in the same way a faculty member worries about those individual students?
1: When students finish our um, our programs. Sometimes they take licens- professional licensure. Um, you know, we we love it that our practical nursing students have 100% pass rate with, with their licensure. That validates what we're doing. Um, and, and we have that in a number of our healthcare programs. We know that once they get there, um, they're going to be successful. What I worry about is the ones who didn't get there. Um, We we have students who, not every student who starts the program finishes the program. Sometimes that's because they get in and they decide, hmm, maybe I really don't want to do this. And that's fine. That's not a failure. I worry more about the ones who really tried and gave it their all or, you know, life intervened as it does for so many of our students and they just they had all the desire, but they just weren't able to get there. I think we do. In some cases, a good job of helping students redirect, particularly in healthcare, care, um, because. We do have cohort programs, so if a student is struggling or um, or is failing, we we they're noticeable. And then the program director or a faculty member or sometimes the dean will sit down and say, okay, if this isn't working, let's go back to what your goal was. What do you really want to do? Um, nursing is such a great example of this. Um, a lot of students will say, I want to go into nursing because I want to help people. Well, do you want to help people in health care? Is it the health care part that's important or is it the helping people? Because there are lots of ways to help people. Um, and, you know, medical social worker or medical human services provider might be a really good match for that person who has that interest in health care but really doesn't want to or um is having trouble mastering the science around that, but really wants to help people. There are other ways to do it. And I think we do a pretty good job in healthcare because we know who those students are and. We, we recognize when they're struggling, but not all of our programs are cohort programs. and I worry more about the students in large programs where there is no cohort, in business, in computers, in English and humanities, in social and behavioral sciences, where it's easier for a student to just fade away. And without anyone realizing it and being able to catch them and have that type of conversation with them. So I I guess that's the that that's where I see the institutional failure um, coming in. Well, can you fix it? Let me ask. We're trying. Let me ask. One of the good things about pathways is that we really have tried and continue to try to identify which student is in which program. And it's it's insanely difficult to be able to produce an exact list of which student is in which major, because our students have multiple majors and we don't always know which one they're really in. Um, We're trying to clean that up. And then we're trying to share that list with faculty so that faculty can look out for those students. You're in my Psych 201 class and you wanna be a forensic psychologist. That's great. Let's talk about what your dreams are. Um, But when those students are mixed in with all the gen ed students who also, you know, all the students from other majors who also need Psych 201, it's hard to determine that that's that student's goal. Um, you might have five people in a class of 30 who are planning to major in psychology, but getting to, to those students is sometimes difficult, but I think we're doing better with that and, and setting an expectation um with faculty that they do that. The other thing about guided pathways that excites me to no end is that we do have a better job of, a better chance of knowing what students are in what what majors. I taught English for years and I never felt like I had students at graduation. There were students who took my classes but they they were, you know, associate of arts and science students. There were 3,000 of them that none of them felt like mine or all of them felt like mine. Um, And the only way I knew students who wanted to go into writing or wanted to study literature was they told me that. And we now have some mechanisms for faculty to be able to know who in their classes is particularly interested in their field. We're also creating opportunities outside the classroom for students to engage. We're gonna, um, we're starting the uh, Psychology Honor Society. Um, in the, yeah, isn't that great? Um, so that those students have something to shoot for and have a, a core, a, a, a cohort group, even without being in all the same classes together. Um, we have a, um, students in support of the visual arts who, who meet together. And some of them are art students. Some of them are just students who like art. Um, we have the stylist group and the Columbia collective, the cola collective who are the writers and the performers. Um, so we're doing better in engaging those students outside the classroom so that they have a community of students who like the same things they do. And there's, um, a better connection outside the classroom with the faculty member. And I think that is going to help with having those conversations with individual students.
0: Let me ask you the
1: the the one of the big
0: hard questions for this season, which is when there's failure, and that kind of failure you were describing, like in healthcare, you've made your attempts, it hasn't worked out and you're out of chances that's the end of that. And that that's loss. And for most humans, that leads to grief, we, we grieve a loss before we can move on. And so this Absolutely. is what I've been asking everyone. And I'm wondering from your perspective, which is a full career, and a career that's gone to many levels is, is there, and if there is, what is the place for
1: loss and grief in higher education? We pretty much tell people, get back on the horse. Um, we're really not very good, I think, about allowing people the time and the space to do that. Part of that might be that we're afraid we'll lose them. If if they go away to grief, they might not come back. Um, and we'd rather them continue, and so we ignore that need. When you put it in terms of grief, I mean, the if you grieve someone who died, that's about a two-year process before you come to anything like a new normal. But we're expecting students to come back in two or three weeks ready for something, ready to try a new plan. That's very unrealistic. yeah, um, I don't know what the answer is. no no that. one has. I think the, the the
0: thing that everybody immediately agrees on is I don't know that place. Mm-hmm. If there is one, I don't know it. So I wonder what could there be a place? Could something be made or or do you think that this is this is the way it is because that's just kind of how the system,
1: it works these days. What's what's your sense of it? I think we could do more of saying to students who've decided they need to leave, we could do more to say, we'll be here when you're ready to come back. I don't think we do a lot of that. I think a lot of times when students leave, they get a letter that says you're on suspension, you can't come back for a semester. Um and that feels very punitive um it feels more like punishment than a gift of time to to reevaluate and and um to adjust and for those students who just decide themselves it's not working and i'm still in good academic standing i could continue but if i can't do what i want to i i can't get motivated to do something different i don't think we do much for them either to say you know we 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 still want you with us there's a place here for you i've never heard or thought of suspension
0: as being a gift
1: of time well that's not how it's presented i that's mean incredible. it's incredible as you are bad you you failed you can't come back for this period of time but it's it's it really i mean the reason we give that that bit of time is for people to gain some gain some distance and gain some perspective but i don't think i haven't read the suspension letter lately but i doubt that's what it says Yeah, I doubt that
0: too. Um, And I was talking to a colleague earlier today, and we were talking about how we're in an open enrollment to your community college, which is such a special and particular place. But there are elements of the ivory tower Mm -hmm. that somehow continue to pop up, even though we aren't. And it sounds like our letter of suspension has that ivory tower model that you are going to be expelled from the special place. You right. can't, you know, you got to step out. But we're not a tower and the walls aren't made of ivory. Mm-hmm. And what if those doors swung both ways, as opposed to that image of expulsion? Literally, mm-hmm. it was more like you said, a, a pause and right. that maybe here's some things that you could do mm-hmm. so that next time things were different. That is a very promising beginning i think Mm -hmm. for questions
1: yeah
0: and uh, that makes me think you are here at the end of your full career you're retiring from the college and i'm wondering what what you found as you look back because i imagine you're you're probably doing (laughs) some looking back as is the nature of things what is the meaning that you found in your work here at the college over the last decades
1: A lot of teachers will talk about watching the light bulb go on and how much we love seeing the light bulb go on. Um, And certainly we all do. But it's more than just that single realization or that, that single understanding of that concept. I think when I think of the students, that i have gotten the most reward from working with it's the ones who were transformed by their experience here the ones who came in lacking in self-confidence um who who left knowing they knew how To do what they've been trained to do. The ones who came in afraid to speak up and left knowing they could express themselves in writing or in speech in a way that compelled other people to listen and conveyed their message. The ones who came in really wanting to be able to give and not knowing how. The students that I got the most from working with and that I remember with the most satisfaction were the ones who were transformed by their experience here um, and have made a better life for themselves, a better life for their families, And part of that's economic, um, certainly, but part of it is that there was work they wanted to do that they loved, that they get to do. Um, It's that they moved into areas that they found fulfilling emotionally and, and intellectually, as well as financially best. What
0: do you hope for the college as you say farewell? What what do you hope is coming next for us?
1: I hope that the college will stay on its track of trying to help students find success and doing that by helping to Get their basic needs met, helping them to find their passion, helping to get them on the path to the right place for them. And since we've been, since I've been part of this conversation and you've had me thinking about failure, um, I, I I, I think that we need to get the goody out of failure as much as we get the goody out of success. That um, we we know when students return to us to train for a second career. Um, we have military students who come to us after the military. They have such skills and, and such abilities and such self-discipline that we, we we build on that and, and we acknowledge that, that they bring that with them. But I th- I don't think we always do a good job of acknowledging the strengths our students bring with them. And even the strengths that come out of failure, the strengths that come out of changing directions and helping them build on that and, um, so I, I think i I would hope for that as well to get the goodie out of failure. what What a great
0: hope <laughs> <laughs> to say, yeah, right to 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 draw on that as to add that to the quiver, as it were, of all mm-hmm. of the things that we could draw on. yeah, this is just wonderful. Is there anything else that comes up for you about? failure as we wrap up our conversation?
1: I think we tend to think of, of failure as being a stopping point and it doesn't need to be. It it might be a point at which we change directions or a point at which we try harder. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Sometimes it really is a, a matter of taking another, taking another try at it. Um, I'm trying to, to think of you know, politicians, how how many, I think it was Abraham Lincoln, how how many elections did he lose before he became president of the United States, you know, but he didn't quit? How many rejection letters did Stephen King get before before he hit the big time with his novels? Failure should not be a stopping point. It might be a pivot point. Or it might be you You just get the battering ram out and you try again. So the trick is, is to
0: figure out for each student, what mm-hmm. do we need? Like you said, do we need a pivot? Do we need to try again? Do we need different support? Do we need better support? Do we need to get out the battering ram and just gut it out? Or some other thing that mm-hmm. none of us have seen yet that we can right. create for them. This has been just a lifelong um, I'm so glad that you were able to to join me for this episode. Um, I think that this was just the a great time to bring you in. I hope you've I hope you've enjoyed being oh immensely. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it. You've made me think.
0: That, I, I, truly the goal of anybody <laughs> in higher education is to think with anyone within an arm's reach. Right. <laughs> right. right. Let's all thinking together, I think is mm-hmm. one of my favorite things is there anything else that you'd like to say to your community in the context of our um in the context of our conversation today
1: failure happens to all of us it happens to faculty feel like failures students feel like failures administrators feel like failures human beings feel like failures the important part is to not let it stop you to figure out why you weren't successful and to try to find another path. Um, Sometimes it's the same path again. And sometimes it's a different path, but try to figure out why you weren't able to do what you wanted to do and um, do, do the work of figuring out how to do it differently.
0: I think that's the kind of encouragement that all of us need. Thinking about failure and setback at every level of the college. What have you heard today that's different from the thoughts and conversations you're having about failure here at MTC? What layer has been added to your thinking? What new questions arise for you? I heard the same concerns and uncertainty from Diane that I've heard from people at every level of the college, which again I think speaks to the near universality of uncertainty in higher education about handling failure. And Diane closed us out with what we all hope for students and ourselves. If something doesn't work the first time, try again a different way. But that begs the question, what is the different way? What should we try next? How should we try it? How can we, as a college, create new possibilities of attempt and re that are useful for students and manageable for faculty and staff? How can we find the strengths failure teaches? Once again, we're directed to new questions about measuring success, about time we offer students to recover from setback, and what services might be useful to them to make that recovery stronger. As we think about creating a place for failure at the college, how might these questions guide our response? Listening to Diane, I also got the sense of how important integration and alignment are at an institution. If we have conversations about failure, then we should be asking, how do our current practices around failure connect with our mission in its current form? Are our current practices aligned with the work we are currently doing in 2024, or are parts of our process tied to past versions of the college? What parts of our practices are artifacts from academia that don't apply to the work of our particular institution that we should remove or revise? What parts of our practice are most alive and effective for our student body? Given the complexity and diversity of our teaching faculty, do we have tools and guardrails that give them needed support in the face of the diversity of student need? Our conversation also leads me to ask questions like, what exactly does the suspension letter say? How are we framing attempt and reattempt for students? How do faculty understand their mission and their relationship to student success? Do we all, as faculty and staff, have a unified sense of the relationship between success and failure and learning? Do we all have practices that we understand and feel are effective and humane for our students and ourselves? And finally, how can we better connect ourselves with our students and our policies and make sure that our policies and materials serve faculty, staff, and students as they need to be served? As promised, this is a season of questions. If you were intrigued by Diane's take on the results of the Hope Center Survey for Students' Basic Needs, visit the webpage for this episode if you're interested in reading the report. There's a link to the results there. For further conversation about that data and how we might address it, listen into Episode 4 of this season with Muffy Allison, a member of Diane's committee and of our Counseling Services team. Join us next time when we continue to gather perspective from the top, the actual top of our college hierarchy. In our next episode, we'll have our final failure story for the season from President Ronald Rames. Dr. Rames is a proud MTC graduate. He'll talk about how his very first semester at MTC had a huge pitfall waiting for him, his first English class listen in to hear what befell him and how he responded. His choices at that moment of failure arguably led him to the role he plays at our college today. Join us next time as the light slowly returns to our part of the world, further into the brand new year and deeper into the web of
1: our community.